Welcome to episode five of the What's Going On Your Head podcast, where we explore the secret inner workings of the mind through performance art and discussion, on stage, live streamed, and now through this podcast series. I'm Liz Smith, the host of the show. For this episode, we're welcoming back John Salmon. If you haven't yet had a chance to listen to episode two, where John is in conversation with Johnny Benjamin, I would highly recommend you do so. It's a real gem. But for this episode, we are going to be exploring the topic of addiction. For the better part of 15 years, I was an active alcoholic and a cocaine user. Reveal all. Who is it that you're in conversation with for this episode? We're in for a real treat. So it's musician Chris Tate, a.k.a. Tate Nucleus, best known for being the keyboard player in Electric Six, whose hits include Danger, High Voltage and Gay Bar. Chris took part in one of our lockdown live shows. Why did you decide to reach out to him for the podcast? The conversation that we had and his performance within the lockdown show was incredible, but we only have a short amount of time within those shows. And I knew that there was just a wealth of conversation that we could have. The online show was such a strong show. So I thought I might blend in some of the moments from that show into this podcast episode. Chris. It's wonderful to uh, speak to you today. It's good to speak with you and Liz again. I feel like it's been years since we talked, and I feel like it's simultaneously been about five minutes since we talked. (laughs) I love what's going on in your head. It was really like a serious breath of fresh air, and it was such an injection of happiness that was. it's great to reconnect. I don't want to say it's been a great year because I know a lot of people have struggled. I know a lot of people have lost people, including myself. But it has forced me and I'm sure a lot of people to take a step back and look in the mirror and see who they really are without what they think defines them. You know, which for me absolutely uh, has been music my whole life. It made me think about the years I was using and alcohol and cocaine were a a uniform for me. You know, absolutely. Not only was an everyday drinker all day long, but it it defined me. I mean, I, I live in Hamtramck, which is the Polish part of Detroit. It's absolutely a badge that you wear here. For a long time, Hamtramck had more bars per capita than anywhere else in the U.S. because there would be a lot of houses that were shifted into bars, uh, especially when a lot of families were moving here in the 40s and 50s to work at the GM plant, which was just outside of town. And the, the big three in general, you know, getting automotive jobs. Every, you know, everybody was looking for a salvation somewhere, whether it was a church or a liquor store or a bar. So there were these bars everywhere. It's a, a big part of the culture here is drinking. And that, and that was something I wore for a bit as a badge for a long time. But even as being a musician that's in recovery now, something that I had to take a hard look at being told to sit still for the last 16 months. Like, who are you really without all that stuff? You know, my, my wife and I have been married for three years now and being told to sit still in a shoebox for 16 months is not something we anticipated. And it made me realize that touring was my form of escape, even as a sober person. Hitting the road was my my form of escape, you know, things get tense. Cool. I, I, I'll be gone for a month and then I'll just hope things have smoothed over or we've just forgotten about whatever was going on, you know, by the time I get back. It's been really good for us. It's also been very hard. I know that a lot of relationships have ended in the last year and a half. And, and again, like I said, I know as, as somebody that struggled with alcoholism myself, I've seen a lot of relapse and I've lost a few friends. It's been a real test. From relationships, jumping back on the tour bus or just closing the door and walking to work, right? It's just those, those things have been taken away from us. 
some people it's been very tough and you know there's been reports of rising domestic violence and loneliness on the the other extreme of people that don't have that kind of network around them they feel feel, feel very alone and the importance of what's going on in your head is is music and performance art and you shared with us a kind of acoustic rendition of project that you've been working on recently palace piers miss moonlight we're gonna play that track now let's do it I can see her face up there in the northern sky Light the way as far rains down will you be my guide In the northern sky In the northern sky And promises and proverbs are by the way, Never gonna happen till I get up on the ladder into the sky Till I get back on the ladder and try Never gonna happen till I get up on the ladder into the sky Never gonna happen till I get back on the ladder and try Till I get up on the ladder into the sky. 
Tell us a bit about Palace Pier and how that track in particular came about. Palace Pier is, is myself and, and one other friend um, from here. We started doing music a few years back for like video game apps. Very simple, a lot of bleep blip, a lot of 8-bit stuff. My friend Keith, who was in Electric 6 for a while, was also playing for a group here called Johnny Headband for many years. It's a great name. We decided when we were doing this video game stuff that we wanted to start working on original songs because we really enjoyed working together. And our experience previous to that was that there was never either of us trying to take over control. And with a lot of bands, you see bands dissolve all all the time because there are too many cooks in the kitchen. That was attractive to us mutually. And we started working on songs. And then it became a lockdown project pretty quick. Palace Pier, the name, local town fairs have always been a thing of great attraction to me. Uh, but Palace Pier represents that in kind of the greatest form of that that I can think of, and that's the Brighton Pier. And that was the first place Electric Six ever did a photo shoot. Brighton was the first place we ever played a show in the UK in 2002. And it was where I proposed to my wife 15 years later. It was a little bit indulgent because he and I grew up on a lot of the same music, whether it was, you know, REM and uh, a lot of the Manchester stuff, New Order and the Smiths and 10,000 Maniacs, who I've been listening to a lot again recently, which is weird. I have, it was something I put on a shelf for decades, but for, for whatever reason, I've been kind of inspired by Natalie Merchant again. Anyways, that stuff obviously was very melancholy and, and that was attractive to kids who felt their lives were very dramatic. And the Palace Pier Project was just kind of getting back to that. You know, when you're a musician, you try to strip your influences back. And we decided to just indulge in it. So the whole thing is very 80s pop or new wave or post-punk or whatever you call it. And the subject matter for Miss Moonlight was just what we were just discussing, where, you know, the dynamics change in relationships over the last 16 months and what you're finding out about how your relationship works and the levels of trust and what works and what doesn't. There, there are times over the last year and a half where I felt so helpless that I would lean really hard on my wife. So I guess the song is a little bit about that. As somebody who isolated pretty hardcore in active using, um, I kept that trait or that defect and took it with me when I sobered up. And uh, they say, you know, character defects that you study in the 12-step programs, they're not flaws, they're survival tools that have become obsolete that you just don't need anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other thing the song was about was just the, the way time was stretched and skewed in so many different ways over the last 16 months, how, how different everything felt. The process, I would say, for us is that we would build a little bit on his stuff. And for me, we would take out all the gratuitous layers that I spend far too much time on because they crowd the song. They get in the way of the greater good, right? You know, I mean, there's so much going on that there's no real room for vocals until we start taking things out. I look back on all the things that mattered to me as, you know, every little thing in the mixing process and the arrangement process and everything else. 
And part of what really stripped that away from me was the recording of Fire because it was a big deal. And when we were working with XL, they were planning on it being a very successful record. And it was. But if you listen to what's going on, the guitar tones are incredible. The drums sound great. Like it sounds like a big monster, but it's very stripped of arrangements. There's, you know what I mean? There are not a million things going on in the background. And that was a valuable lesson to me. We recorded it with a guy named Damien Mendes and we recorded part of it here at the White Room in Detroit. And then part of it was recorded at Abbey Road. Being the keyboardist in a rock band was all, already humbling because <laughs> when it comes to a heavy dance rock band, uh, I'm, we'll say the, the low man on the totem pole. Uh, it was a lesson in humility for sure. But then to take a look at how big a record can be without all the stuff that I find has to be necessary. There can't be any spare moment with nothing going on. You know, that's my tendency is to overcomplicate things and to see something do that well with very stripped back and still remain huge was, was a valuable lesson for me where arrangements are concerned. Being an electric six and that pressure, like say you talk there about the kind of the pressure to, to have a big hit before you've even struck a note, right? <laughs> you've got Abbey Road booked in, you've got these iconic places to record this music. I guess with Palace Pier and we'll come on to talk about Mel Gould as well. You haven't had that kind of pressure, I guess, on creating something. It's been 18 years. <laughs> so also there is zero pressure. And I think that's the way Electric Six likes to keep it. Not to speak for anybody else, but I know that Tyler, after those first few years, was very happy with us kind of settling in as a cult favorite band. And because it was so stressful and he was the one that was in all the videos, you know, and he's always been this game show host personality, which is what I absolutely love. And I believe what sets us apart on this island of misfit toys that we're on is his presence. But it was a lot for him in the first few years. I mean, going back to addiction, I'd love to be able to hang my hat on music and rock and roll where that is concerned. But, you know, I was 25 when that record came out. And by the time I was 19, I couldn't go to sleep without having a drink. I think this is a good point to bring in a segment from the live lockdown show, because he talks a bit more about his life up to the age of 19. And let's beam over to Detroit. Hello, Chris. Chris is aka Tate Nucleus. Where did the name Tate Nucleus come from? It actually came from a punk Japanese band called P-Lander Z who couldn't get the name right and they were mispronouncing it and they were ending it with a question. Our guitarist just lost his mind. He said, did you just say Tate Nucleus with a question mark? That was it. For 18 years now, I have been that person with a question mark at the end of his name. Uh, I would love to blame or pin my drug and alcohol use on rock and roll, but it happened a lot earlier. When I, when I was in my mid-teens, I got into a really bad car crash, and it was a kind of a life or death thing. And my sponsor says, you know, oftentimes with people who struggle with addiction, there's a perfect storm that happens that's something between the mind and the body and the soul. I'd always been a huge music lover and loved the idea of creating and and the, uh, another world. You know, I'd always been into big into bands that were allowed me to escape. When I got into this car crash, uh, it was the same year that I had started at a new school. So my face was basically split and busted open, and um, I, I was entering a new school at 15 years old. And as a result of that, I was going into, it was just a traumatic moment for me. And I isolated very deeply. The previous school had had plenty of friends and had been fairly social. And this one moment just ground everything to a halt and starting anew 
uh, severe isolation from that point on. And two things happened to me as a result of the accidents. Uh, one was that I bought a guitar and a drum set and started playing. And the idea of becoming a creator was really, really something that kept me going. And the other thing was I discovered alcohol. It started with a friend and, you know, trying it on a weekend. And it's a very familiar story to what you hear a lot of in the rooms or in the meetings. You know, I went from this person who was absolutely paralyzed and going into school like Frankenstein, but really struggling inside as well, to being two feet taller, you know, uh, being socially feeling accepted. You know, it, it, the whole world, I always compare it to Pleasantville where it was literally, it went from black and white to color. And in the first six months, it went from, well, this is, you know, this is good from time to time. It'll be great every weekend to, well, this, this is great every weekend. How about every day? And I couldn't really go to sleep without having a lot of alcohol by the time I was 19. Being in a band, how much was part of being in the band that you, that it was just expected that, you know, it's rock and roll, right? So it's sex drugs, booze, it would be strange if you weren't like that. I think we were a goofy enough band that I would not say there was actually, you know, we were certainly not Motley Crue. It's, it was an amazing experience, but I think the one bit of damage it did is that I felt like everything I had done in the past was leading up to where I belong. My addictions were already put in place, but in the first few years, you know, people like Too Many DJs took notice. And Errol Alkin and our booking agent was Alex Nightingale, who's Annie Nightingale's son, who'd worked with Primal Scream. So he was this big presence and hilarious guy. And as a result of that, we're doing things like going to parties in Paris at Naomi Campbell's mansion there. And, you know, us in our $20 <laughs> Salvation Army suits, you know. <laughs> doing these things and recording at Abbey Road and doing these things that just were so far beyond our universe in the first year. It went from zero to a thousand very quickly. And I think my ego held on to that. So I was already drinking and using on a, on a daily basis, but that gave me permission to do it. And the next few years obviously taught me, <laughs> taught me a, a, another valuable lesson because we were kind of a hip band for a moment. And I believe the chic disco dance band title was probably given to the Scissor Sisters. As soon as Gay Bar came out, we became a goofball band. And as the, the popularity kind of petered out and then settled into what it has become, my addictions went into overdrive. Add Bong here. We're going to segue back to the live show now and listen to the first song he performed that night, which is called Oh Severed Head, which is a song about that period in his life. The live show was performed over Zoom, which created some quality issues, so we'll blend in the high quality recording of the song into the live version. Find some real friends 
clear She's still gone and I'm still here Soon enough I guess it disappears Better take care of that old shop hand It'll get achy if the weather goes bad Tell me something I can't understand Awesome. And, and the uh, chat room lit up when the kazoo came out. Not only is it the first time we've had an American on the show, it's also the first time we've had a kazoo. When, so I had a, an accordion that I inherited from my grandfather, and I, I was okay with it. But really, as soon as I realized, because, you know, I am an alcoholic and an addict, and I make things as easy as possible and try to get away with as much as possible, I realized I could get a similar sound out of one of these as a full-blown accordion. So I took the shortcut. And speaking about the kazoo, I, I should be clear that I am absolutely not making fun of addiction at any at, at all. Um, I, I speak very lightly when I'm talking about it because we, in every meeting, I'm part of a 12-step group as well, Alcoholics Anonymous, and we talk a lot about the things we went through, but we also talk a lot about joy and getting rid of the things that had plagued us and, you know, dealing with amends and resentments and the things that we held against people in order to make room for love and compassion. You mentioned that there was a couple of times where you had sought some sort of help for your addiction. Did you decide to do that yourself? Were you kind of coerced? I guess what I'm interested to kind of understand is what was that moment that made you realize something had to change? I had gone through treatment a few times, gotten in trouble with the law, been in the hospital multiple times for some pretty severe health issues and got into serious tax and financial trouble. Basically one foot on the street and one foot in a house that was falling apart behind the bar that I bartended at, which is an important piece of the story. I didn't see it at the time, but in hindsight, it's like my entire life revolved around addiction and anything that got in the way with, of it, I, I just shut out. You know, I was living in this house that was just basically falling apart, barely making the bills, but still being gone on tour six months a year. When I was home, I was bartending and all that money was going towards the Coke for the end of the night. And it was just this complete cycle of insanity. And I still didn't see it. I honestly, I mean, I did, but I really 
was in the, the denial was just completely insane. And I, there was no question that I was in trouble, but um, I mean, if I'm being totally honest with it, I just had accepted my fate. Okay. I'm going out early, I'm going out Bill Hicks style. And that's just the way it is. And I'm, I'm fine with that because I can't deal with this pain anymore. And we were in Nashville and uh, our singer came into uh, the, the room after we'd played and I'd been on a three, three day bender. I woke up the next day and I saw that there was, alcohol still in the in a bottle that was in the garbage can and that was my first indicator that something was wrong because there was never alcohol left anywhere the next day it was gone everything was gone he came in and said yeah you tried to fight everyone last night you tried to drive the van off you haven't had a license in eight years and i can't watch you do this to yourself anymore. there was no shame attached and i think that's what worked is because he didn't come at me and say i'm tired of your bullshit he came at me and said if you're going to kill yourself you got to do it somewhere else because it, I can't watch it anymore. For somebody to approach me like that as a friend, it just broke my heart. And I was really good at hiding things. I mean, there's no question with the guys in the band that I had problems. But other than showing up for holidays, my family had no idea. You know, I didn't pick up the phone. I never talked to anyone. My dad said years before I had been hospitalized for pancreatitis, and they came to visit. And after I got sober, he said, I didn't think you'd kept drinking after the doctors told you you were going to die. I just figured he didn't pick up the phone anymore because he didn't want to spend time with us. And that broke my heart too. I just realized from both sides how powerful the addiction thing is, how much damage it's doing, not even consciously. You know, it's not like I was trying to inflict that on people, but they were drawing their own conclusions because in the absence of my presence or my checking in with anybody, you know, they just assumed that I didn't want to be around. And it wasn't that. It was that I was just paralyzed by my own addictions, my own demons. We sometimes just want to assume that people have figured it out and I guess what you're saying there is that you were quite good at disguising that things were okay to some people within the band to um, disguise the crazy behavior right <laughs> that uh, that went, went yeah. down but it's almost like what goes on tour stays on tour. By the time I got sober I was fortunate enough to be, so I was 34 years old and the, the pe people that surrounded us and the people in the band were, were still drinking and, and, and using and whatnot, but not only had they slowed down a little bit, whereas I was still going full steam, uh, they had seen the damage I'd done. So they had seen me at, at Dr. Jekyll and they had seen me at Mr. Hyde and they didn't want to deal with Mr. Hyde anymore. They'd had enough to the point where I was thrown off a tour. I was really very fortunate in the respect that when I came back on board, after I'd gone to treatment for the third time, could no, could no longer deny that things were falling apart. You know, I could not drink fast enough to convince myself that things were not going south. When I came back, the people in the band were so supportive that they were making sure the whiskey wasn't laying around in the green room. And if I needed a coffee, we'd stop on the way to the gig and that kind of thing. Just little miraculous blessing nugget things that, that they afforded me uh, because they had seen that, that I was in serious trouble. I'm going to take you back to the live show now when he talks about how he found his sponsor just after he'd been thrown off the tour. Uh, I was sent home from the tour and while I was sitting in the airport in Nashville and I called a friend in the program and said, I need help. And I've been avoiding this for a long time, but it just, I, I, you know, I can't do it anymore. She said, here are two phone numbers. The first person that answers is your sponsor. So I called a guy flew back to Detroit and he said, I'll meet you three days later. This was Sunday and I'm supposed to meet him on a Wednesday. So I meet this guy in the, in the lobby of a church and um, 
this is three days later, and this just kind of is my, my perfect moment of this is where my, my mind was at. And this is the moment that I always go back to as far as the moment of clarity. Three days later, I had convinced myself that I could probably fix it on my own. And this is like financial devastation, trouble with family and friends, health falling apart. Everything around me was burning. The power of the self-manipulation that was going on was that three days had, had passed and I'd figured out a way to get around something that's plagued me and everybody around me for 15 years. So I said that to him. I said, listen, Dave, thanks for, for meeting with me today, but I think I know what I'm doing. And he started chuckling. And my self-righteous indignation kicks in and the how dare you, which is instantly the wall goes up. Who do you think you are? You don't know me. And his response was, uh, you're sitting in a church lobby with a complete stranger. You had to bicycle here because you haven't had a driver's license in eight years. Does any of this seem like normal to you? Does any of this seem like something you can fix? And the reason he had told me that is because he'd had a similar experience. After my how dare you moment, this guy actually managed to kind of put a dent in the armor. And I stopped and said, he was like, look, just give me an hour and sit down and talk to me about this. I tried to throw the, the spirituality thing in and say, look, you know, not into the God thing. Mentally, I'm thinking maybe I can get out of this with the God card. So I threw that on the table. <laughs> and the sponsor said, well, that's okay. I'm an atheist. And I'm like, <laughs> and after that, he said, look, you don't have to believe in God. What you have to believe in right now is just that you're not God. And you've been acting like God for 15 years. So just bear with me and sit and talk with me for a little while. So this guy really, I mean, I was being pulled, kicking and screaming, despite the fact that this was the third time I tried to get clean. The first two times I remember wandering around the streets in our neighborhood going, I don't even know who I am without it. It defined me. It was my uniform. And it was like, I don't know who I am and I don't know what to do without it. So that was my moment where I actually allowed the walls to go down again. I loved his anecdote about meeting Dave, his sponsor, for the first time. When you're spiraling out of control, and, and I think this can apply to situations other than addiction, you can often be really kind of deaf to what your friends are, are saying or what professionals are saying to you because you just don't want to hear it, right? Or, or your brain or your mind so cluttered and confused, you, you can't hear it, you can't think clearly anymore. You've been doing a lot of work in mental health, and I'm curious to hear your observations on how you've seen people get to that moment of clarity. What Chris was kind of saying, you know, where he was there in the church and kind of almost trying to find these reasons why he shouldn't be there, why he thought he shouldn't be there. A lot of the time, people don't realise they need help. Sometimes that person can just be in the moment of their life. I think it's that lack of awareness sometimes an individual can have about the damage that they're doing to themselves. It could be an intervention by somebody at the right moment in time. Chris talks about the armour that he's wearing. Somehow just was able to kind of break through that armour on that day. It's a real challenge because if you're functioning, if you're, you're not aware of the impact that you're having on others, it, it can be really, really hard for the person that needs the help realising they actually do need that help. It seems like he had to hit absolute rock bottom before that armour could be penetrated. But... He still cycled to the church, right? I think sometimes rock bottom can be even worse. It's whether somebody could find you unconscious or almost there's forced intervention. It's also the right kind of person. It's somebody that is trying to offer help, however subtly or quite forcefully. I think it, it is about you feeling comfortable that you can let your guard down if you're struggling and you may have 
tried to get help and it hasn't worked the first time. It's, I think it's tried to have a belief and hope that the right person will come along. It doesn't have to be a counsellor or a therapist. I think it's trying to find your tribe, find a space, a place where you can start to feel that you can let that guard down and, and tell somebody that yeah, things may not be that great. What must be devastating news for any musician to be told, we don't want you to be in our band, our, our gang, it, that would have been incredibly hard for Chris, but was a step in the right direction of Chris actually starting to get the help that he needed. But a big decision for the, the rest of the band to make too, because it's closing that door on them to try and force them to get help is very, very difficult. And I was reading the book by Alistair Campbell at the moment and talking about people within his family that have been addicted to alcohol and kind of the worries of what to do with family members and not letting them back in the house if they've turned up drunk and having these kind of ground rules, but then really sticking to them. Somebody that's supporting somebody with addiction is really, really hard because sometimes you have to maybe make those decisions that short term could actually make things worse. Yeah, you've got to kind of wrestle with, with your own conscience that I'm doing this because I hope this will allow them to realise that they've got to get the help that they need. Yeah. I think it's a really difficult uh, situation when you're the friend in a relationship with someone dealing with addiction or, or any mental illness. Sometimes the default is to, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to create more trouble or say, say the wrong thing. I will always say acknowledge it's a difficult conversation. If it is awkward, say it this is really awkward me telling you this it's, it's been consistent it's you know I think if you dropped in and pointed out somebody saying oh you're you're drinking too much and then you disappear and you don't talk to them for a few months later and then you're back down the pub together and you haven't acknowledged it I think you've, you've got to be very mindful that if you are worried about somebody and you're going to talk to them about it that they may not want to initially share that much information with you but be consistent in, in checking in on them and, and how they are. That's really good advice. I was still frantically trying to live in a Studio 54 world that only really existed for about a year. And it was due to these opportunities we had. And it was really strange because when I look back on how tense and stressful that year was, I don't think I would want to relive it consciously. It was a great experience. We got to do a million things that I dreamed about as a kid, but it was my ego kicking in. Reality could not keep up with my perception of who I thought I wanted to be and who I was supposed to be. Uh, my addictions went completely crazy because I was just trying to drink myself into uh, the opportunity to alter reality, in my alt if that makes sense, alter my perception. To finish off the electric six part of this story, love to hear like if there's any particular kind of standout moment of being in the band. I think almost anybody's dream is to play Glastonbury, and that was at the very beginning, and I was still very much using. But to play uh, the other stage, I believe it was called, just playing was a dream of mine. And to be up on that stage and going, oh my God, there are 50,000 people in front of us was a huge thing. The last record we did, which was called Bride of the Devil, was released two years ago and I produced it and it was the first one I'd ever done. And when we played those songs for the first time on a stage, I had this moment where I was like, wow, where I looked at the beginning of this timeline and, and, and now and how as much as it meant to be on a stage, I had completed this project that will be there for all time now that I put a lot of time into the songwriting and I produced it with our bass player and 
I felt that it kind of got back to what I'd always loved about the band, which was our singer really belting it out. And the more, despite being the keyboard player, I love the more aggressive stuff. And I really like that was our goal was to make it as hard and as loud a rock record as we could. And I felt like we'd achieved that. And then also to play those songs, it was like, it showed me how my priorities had changed early on. What I wanted to do was what everyone had done before me. My idols, you know, had all played those stages and that meant so much. And looking 16 years into the future as somebody who was sober and had fell in love with music again, it was like this project that I completed was so much more important than playing on a stage because someone else had done it. And just, like I said, just sh showed me how my priorities had changed. Like I'm, I'm far more interested in studio work and arrangements and that kind of thing now than I am rocking out. I love touring and I love hitting the road, but I also really appreciate the creative process in a way that I don't think I allowed myself to have the, the capacity for when I was using. With your first project after Electric Six, where, where you'd stopped using, which was Bell Ghoul. Um, Bell Ghoul, yep. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what that was like. In 2011, I went to treatment for the third time, but the time, knock on wood, that stuck in a place called The Retreat in Wayzata, which is just outside of Minneapolis. I was very foggy. I think a lot of people are, you know, because as the dust clears from active addiction, or as you're sobering up, not only are you coming off chemical dependency, but a lot of emotions are coming back in that you were suppressing for years. That was my experience. I said, oh my God, I'm feeling everything. I'm, I'm, I'm pissed off. I'm horny. I'm resentful. I'm this, that, and the other thing. And it all happens at once. And so I'm at this place and my ego goes to, will you be able to write songs? We, you know, will you be able to create as if I'm Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin or Kurt Cobain? <laughs> like I'm, I'm having those kind of that level struggles. I, I'm, I'm not those people and I'm the keyboardist in, a, in Electric Six. <laughs> so in hindsight, it's funny that I was, at, you know, again, I was being pretty dramatic about it. Will I be able to create without the, without the spirits? Will, will I have the spirits without the spirits? Will I, without the demons, am I creatively interesting? a really goofy story, but it means so much to me. So there was a piano there and I was just messing around on it. And I just started playing Don't Stop Believing by Journey. I mean, goofy, you know, just joking around. I started playing that bit, that opening bit. And people heard it and everybody came into the room and started singing, you know, just a small town boy. Everybody started going to the point where the counselors came out of their offices and told us to shut up and break up the crowd and to stop. And it was so, it was such a goofy moment, but it meant so much to me because what it did in that instant is reconnect me with music in a way that I, music had not been, been a priority for years. It was always booze and the hunt for the drugs, you know, came first, it took precedence over everything. And so as, as silly as that moment was, it just made me realize like, this is what I, this connection with other people, what music has done for me or what it did originally allowing me to connect. It came back in that moment. It's like, I'm, I'm making this harder than it is. And I'm overthinking it. If I just get out of my own way, stuff like this happens, these cool stories and these cool connections. So that allowed me to kind of gave me the courage, I guess, to put another ensemble together and I had been speaking with a good friend for a while who was writing to me in rehab um, Jesse Ferris Smith who is Patty Smith's daughter and she had had some familial experience also with substance use so she wrote me and some other friends wrote, wrote to me in rehab but it really really meant a lot so we talked about putting a group together and the two of us 
started working on some tunes that I had written and was writing in, in rehab. Another friend, Matt, who was with our bass player, had played with Uncle Cracker, who was Kid Rock's DJ. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you all this to give you a, a layout of how weird this collection is. So Mike Alonzo was our drummer. He's flogging Molly's drummer. And then Zach was our guitarist, who was like Brendan Benson, Electric Six. It was this very bizarre hodgepodge of characters. But we were all friends first. So we came from all these bizarro corners of rock or pop or country or whatever universe. But what we came up with, the result of the sound, I believe, was somewhere between Nick Drake and the Zombies. You know, those were the bands that we covered. And I, I'm not saying that to say that we were of that caliber. <laughs> It was kind of bubblegum folk pop stuff that w was the sound that was a result of, of those characters coming together. I think we played six shows total over the course of seven years. It was, it was a cool experience and it really made me proud of my songwriting abilities in a way that I, you know, Electric Six is very much a team effort and it's also not my project. I have to be mindful of that. And this was kind of my little baby that I, I got to really used as a creative outlet for the first time as a sober person since I was 15 years old. And it was also the support of these friends and these people that I love. So it really meant a lot on a lot of levels. And I got a lot out of it, some amazing stories and some fantastic opportunities to play live and just a collection of work that I'm really proud of. In other podcasts, we've explored people that you know, maybe they haven't been in a, in a band, right? But they found themselves, whether in the hospital or, or getting treatment, and the role that creativity, music, and arts in a setting where if you, if you find yourself in a hospital, it feels like that's where you found your feet again, that, that confidence. You know, I, I love the fact that what you kind of described is kind of playing that on the piano and other people coming around. So it sounds like some sort of realization of like, oh, this is why music is important to me this is the joy I get from it but I also think about probably the joy that you were giving to the other people that were, were listening right and right. that for whatever was going on in their head at that time here was some guy that's just playing journey and you know, it's a distraction and it's that power that music in particular that can change the way you're thinking or change your mood the impact of music that can have on others as well not just yourself Right. And that's, that's exactly it. And that's why I love that story because it came with such little effort. Journey is not a band I grew up with or anything else. It was kind of a joke here. You know, the song says, you know, just small town boy born and raised in South Detroit. Well, South Detroit is Canada. There is no South, South Detroit, you know? So everyone used that lyric as, as an excuse to kind of make fun of the band. To use that song and kind of play it almost as a joke to begin with and everybody floods in and they're just, they're just taking a breath. You know what I mean? When you're in treatment, you're dealing with a lot of heavy stuff that, you know, you figure out why you drank or why you used. It's like, God, I'm dealing with this stuff that I've just, just been run from or trying to suppress for years. A cool moment that was just a break that obviously, I guess, everybody needed because they came in screaming the words and just cracking up. And it was just a really, yeah, it was a great moment of connection that came through. Don't stop believing. <laughs> so thanks, Journey. <laughs> yeah, I think you've given every single listener that tune is now rattling around right. in everybody's head. And the other thing that was a big deal to me was, was stepping out of my shell as somebody who was sober and uh, super self-conscious about even being on stage with an established band. You know, it's part being afraid without that comfort blanket of alcohol, so to speak, where, you know, the nerves aren't there when I'm on stage. To go out completely sober was a very different experience and it took time to come out of my shell with that. You know, when I was using, it was all about being a golden god on stage. Everything revolved around ego and it was the opposite effect when I was sober. And then to go 
and sing for a group where I was writing the songs. Like I said, we didn't play often, but it allowed me to really step out of my shell and be scared and be okay with that. The music suited that personality. So I didn't have to go out there and swing an ax and be some kind of rock person. It was bubblegum pop. So it was, it eased me back into feeling okay on stage and comfortable. And that expectation is my enemy. I've learned that a lot in sobriety too. As somebody who spent 15 to 20 years in very heavy active addiction, I am now, I've catch myself frantically trying to make up for lost time or beating myself up about all those years I wished with family, you know, and then trying to predict the future too. I can't just stay in the present. I've either got to be beating myself up for the past or worrying about what's happening five years from now, instead of just allowing myself to be at peace and, and present. A lot of guilt and shame that I've worked through and also a lot of expectation that, you know, my life has never gone the way I thought it would from one five year increment to the next. All of those amazing things that have happened in your life. But here you're still saying that addiction, you feel like it's still robbed you of time, even though if I look at all the things that you've done, it's it's incredible. Mm. The, that voice that's sometimes inside there that, that makes you forget those amazing things that you've done. Turning the voices down is what alcohol and, and drugs did for me. And once you sober up, you start to deal with those things in a, in a healthy way and then process things in a, in a healthy manner and instead of instant gratification and escapism. And also my priorities have shifted. You know, you made a beautiful point there. It's my ego is telling me what's the next thing. What's the, big, what's the next thing that you have to be working on because you have to be working on something at all times. And having a family, I don't have to do that now. I have the freedom and liberation to not just be part of a family, but to have people actually trust me as somebody who's sober and accountable for their actions now, which is something I never experienced. It was fly by night, one moment to the next, you know, and if something goes wrong, I'm going to figure out how to blame you for it. It's, it's almost like an addiction of its own. Like it's never enough. Well, what about the next thing? And really I've had so many opportunities that I never thought in my lifetime I would, I would be able to have. We're heading back to the live show now for the final performance from Chris in this podcast with a song called Jonathan Turtle. So tell us about the second song you're about to perform. As somebody who was sober, I felt for a long time that because of the years I'd lost and the relationships that I'd lost, I find myself being in a frenzy to try and catch up or make things better or where am I supposed to be at this point in my life or, you know, I, I haven't accomplished enough, this, this, that and the other thing. Am I paying attention to everything? It's very overwhelming. And the program that I'm part of, the 12-step program, is, is learning about that agitation and finding self-awareness and drawing boundaries and finding finding balance and for me balance is between self-loathing and self-obsession i'm either one or the other i'm either whipping myself or i'm absolutely obsessed with what i'm doing and what i'm good at what i'm horrible at most most of the time um but in between is a balance and every day that's you know my goal is to, is to stay in the middle of that scale. And the more I grow in the program and in sobriety, the further away I am from active using, the easier that becomes. And I used to think of it as a finish line I was looking towards. And now it's a liberating chance to be able to think of it as a constantly growing process for the rest of my life. But I do get worked up. And uh, I read this article about Jonathan Tortoise, who is a, he's the mascot of St. Helena. He's a 188-year-old tortoise who, to put in that into perspective for some people, he was born 10 years after Napoleon died on St. Helena, was exiled to and then passed away. So he's been around for that long. So what has this creature seen? Two world wars, Great Depression, Industrial Revolution, mass atrocities, and still as somebody who's trying to better myself, catch myself 
bitching about cold french fries and screaming at people <laughs> driving down the freeway that can't hear me anyways. Talk, speaking, going back to enjoying the journey, realizing how what where I am actually at in the universe and what's going on with me and what I need to be focused on. Um, I wrote this song about this. It's, it's turtle for poetic license just because it fit more, but it, um, it's about this mascot of St. Helena. That's fantastic. I can see why you couldn't really do Jonathan Tortoise. It's kind of a bit hard to sing, right? <laughs> be really good to kind of hear, you know, if somebody's listening to this podcast that have their own demons and addictions that they're, they're struggling with at the moment, whatever that may be. What kind of tips or advice would you give somebody that finds themselves in this kind of space? As hard as the last 16 months have been, it's also been an incredible period of growth for the music industry that I never honestly thought would show up. It was partially a result of everything just coming to a, a grinding halt. The ability to talk about problems instead of hiding them behind that uniform is something that I never felt was really an option for people who are constantly traveling and constantly on the road.
you just don't talk about it. It's part, partly a generational thing. You keep your mouth shut, you get the work done and you move forward. And that's part, partly, I am this person that I project to people. So I'm not allowed to let that guard down. Part of the reason we started Passenger, which for a little bit of background, Passenger is just a small organization in Detroit. It's a nonprofit that helps people who are coming through town either get to 12-step meetings or we have a clean green room that we take to local festivals here. And it's just a place for respite and a little bit of solace away from the constant buzz of being on tour, being in a festival situation. You know, we've worked on a, a, a meeting finder and we have an online meeting as well. That was based on my experience because on the coasts here, recovery for many years has been very prevalent. In the Midwest, for most bands, or at least my experience, the drives are much longer. The free time is in far less supply. You, you run out of time and, and that recovery community just isn't as prevalent. So I had a really hard time, both the Midwest of the United States and in Canada, and it came to a head in 2013. We were sitting in a town called Saskatoon. We'd driven all day. I didn't have any data at the time on my phone. It was dark out. Everything was closed. There was no coffee shop or anything. And so my two choices were to either sit in a bar because there was no green room or dressing room or sit in a van in the middle of winter. It just hit me. I was like, there has to be an easier way for this. So that's why we established Passenger. But anyways, so that's our little outpost here in Detroit. Over the last 16 months, what I've seen are organizations like AA, but also organizations that are not 12-step um, show up and have online meetings. And there are so many music-based meetings now. So Backline does meetings that are not 12-steps. Specifically, they're just support meetings and they're online and they happen weekly. Um, the Back Lounge, which is a Wednesday group, Music Support has weekly meetings. We have a Tuesday meeting. There are so many opportunities, and, and AA and NA have these meetings where you, it's not just a share meeting. You know, there are open meetings, there are speaker meetings. So even if someone's just curious, they can drop in with their screen off and just have a listen to what people are saying, if they're curious or if they have concerns with the way their life is going. When the road gets really grinding and I feel like I'm lost at sea because I haven't seen my community of recovery in weeks, I can literally jump on a meeting in the middle of the night from Australia and listen to a complete stranger thousands of miles away and instantly relate to some of the things they're saying, you know, and that's powerful. That's incredible. A year and a half ago, I would have killed for that opportunity. And now it's everywhere. And I think those conversations are being held in, in a much more prevalent way about opening up, not just about alcoholism or addiction, but just general mental health in the music industry in a way that, that has never taken place previously. We asked the same question to every guest on the What's Going On In Your Head podcast. If I had a magic pill that I could give you that meant that you didn't have these challenges with addiction and stuff, would you take that magic pill? That's a great question. And it's funny because I was just talking to my sponsor about this the other day. Uh, I would not. And the reason being, I don't believe that there a version of myself exists in any universe that would be allowed to enjoy life the way I do now without the struggles that I had to go through to get here. Uh, my old man used to say, you know, you never took the easy road ever on anything. It was always bashing my head against the wall. But those experiences shaped me and, and allowed me to be, I, I mean, on a very surface level example would be, you know, playing live. I, I'll be honest. I don't believe that there, some of the, some of the festival shows we've done, I don't think I could have got on that stage without some of that. And that's not to encourage people 
to drink <laughs> to break down their inhibitions. Um, but uh, on a much deeper level, I don't think I would have ever gotten to a point where I could appreciate what I've got without it being taken away, without all the self-sabotage and without all the rebuilding and without all the, the, the joy that I've seen in the absence of the chaos I used to create. Thank you, Chris, for your time. And thank you for all the work you're doing to, to help other people, whether that's in Detroit or speaking openly like you have done today. Well, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Were you surprised by his answer to the magic pill question? I really never know how people are going to take that question. I love the fact that he had actually been talking about that pill-related question just very recently. I was surprised. Based on the challenges that he has had, I did think that maybe he would have, would have taken it. By having all of these experiences, there's only one of him that, that's really out there. He feels like he's been able to live his life and learn from it. Yeah, I was surprised too. And I, I wonder, you know, if we'd been talking to somebody who was still in the throes of addiction or that could see the, the damage it was doing to people around them, but still felt that they couldn't stop that, that kind of behaviour, whether, you know, you're more likely to want to find some kind of quick fix. He's worked really, really hard over the years to not need to take that pill. He's, and it feels like he's got all the right things in place, the kind of checks and balance to, to make sure he's got the support there when and as he needs it. Thank you so much to Chris for sharing his experiences with us so honestly and for the wonderful anecdotes and the great stories. It's certainly made for a really engaging episode and at the same time he's given us a great insight into drug and alcohol addiction. It's also a hugely inspiring story of recovery that just leaves you with a feeling of hope. If you want to find out more about Passenger Recovery and the support network he's set up for travellers in recovery, the website address for that is PassengerRecovery.com. If you want to see him perform live, the Electric Six tour dates are online at electric6.com. Thank you to our interviewer John Salmon and our editor and musician Kim Halliday, who plays such a crucial role behind the scenes in making these episodes happen. In our next episode, we're going to be taking you on a roller coaster ride with Kerry Ash, who will be performing monologues from her play Bipolar Me and be in conversation with Rupert Isles.